I'm just, yes, overpowering speech. <clears throat> Let's try that again. All of us naturally try to make sense of what we experience. When you look at the world around you, when you look at the people around you, when you look at yourself, we try to make sense of the good and the bad that you see. We try to make sense of the beauty and the evil. The Bible gives us the best explanation. God tells us that he created everything good. That is the source of the good and the beauty, and we still see glimpses of it today in the world and in people. But Satan and mankind have rebelled against God. You've already heard that this morning more than once. And that's the source of the bad and the evil that we see around us, but not just around us, also in us. So the story of the Bible is the story of God rescuing people and changing them. We just sang that song. He's our rescuer. God changes people over their lifetimes to become more like him. It is a lifetime process. These rescued people are called Christians. And that change happens in a world that is still broken. And it happens in people that are still sinful and selfish. Which is why we see both good and evil in the Christian church. And we see the mix in our letter today. As Jesse mentioned, we're continuing our series, The Seven Dangers looking at the, the letters to the seven churches. So remain seated, and let's read together from the screen, Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. Let's read together. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now you've noticed each week after we read, I talk a little bit about the city in which the church is located. 
because each week there is something about the city, the circumstance, what is going on there that you see reflected in the letter that affects the Christian church. And the same is true in Thyatira. The city is located about 40 miles from Pergamum, which was last week's letter. They had a temple to Apollo, who, according to Greek mythology, was the son of Zeus. By the way, another connection to last week, <clears throat> Apollo's son in Greek mythology was Asclepius, one of the gods that they worshipped in Pergamum last week. But here's something we have not talked about. Cities had guilds back then. We don't use that word anymore. But they had, it, had those back then, which controlled business sectors. So, for example, there was a, a guild for the silversmiths. And there was a guild for the butchers. And there was a guild for the cloth makers. They, these guilds controlled that business sector. But they also pushed their members to participate in the worship of the god of the guild. Remember, a few weeks ago, I said just a general pattern in the Roman Empire in that time. Most households had a household god. That dozens to choose from, but they would choose one that was their god. Every business guild had a god. Every city had a god that they chose, and you're expected to worship those. And so these guilds are pushing their members to participate in the worship of that god and the worship festivals that they had. Think Mardi Gras. That's a festival, sort of. Often included food offered to idols and immorality. That was part of the worship that went on. So that is the city of Thyatira. Jesus begins this letter with some words about himself as he does the other letters. He says he is the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze. Now when he says that he is the son of God, this provides a connection to Psalm 2, which is considered a messianic psalm. There were psalms and other parts of the Old Testament from the prophets that people back in the Old Testament time said, we recognize that this is God telling us about the Messiah who is to come. And Psalm 2 is one of those, is one of those uh, passages. We're going to see a second connection to Psalm 2 in our letter today. But let's look at a couple of verses here. Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so when you look at the whole of Psalm 2, what you see is authority and judgment. Authority and judgment. Now it's possible also with this reference to Jesus calling himself the Son of God, that he does so because Apollo was worshipped in Thyatira. And as I mentioned, Apollo in Greek mythology was the son of Zeus. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of God. Here's the difference. Apollo and Zeus were myth. They're make-believe. Jesus is God the Son, and he is real. Jesus also says of himself in the letter, he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Now, if you haven't recognized it, in the New Testament, often you will have a phrase, and that phrase is a repeat of something somewhere else. And that's how it is a pointer to other passages. In this case, 
you see these two phrases in Revelation chapter 1, so the very beginning of the letter where you have a description of Jesus, and in Daniel 10. And in both cases, these two phrases refer to Jesus' authority and judgment. Are you catching a theme here? Authority and judgment for Jesus. Then Jesus talks about the situation of the church in Thyatira, and he begins with the good. He says, I know your works. I know your love and your faith and your service. I know your patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. This is a great commendation. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if all of us could say that, if Jesus would say that about all of us, that he knows these things about us. But one of the things you see each week is Jesus says, here's what I know about you, the church. He knows everything about us, both the good and the bad. But it's interesting he adds that, that little bit at the end, your latter works exceed the first. You see, in the first letter that, that Jesus wrote to Ephesus, he gave them a very glowing recommendation as well, commendation. Here's all the great things you're doing. But for them, he said, you started off great, but you're not doing so good now because you've lost your first love. Here with these Christians, he's saying, okay, you started off okay, you're doing even better now than you were at first. And the first thing that Jesus commends them for is their love. But there's a warning that I need to give right here. Don't try to pit truth against love and don't try to separate them. And I'm giving the warning because some in our culture today try to do just that. They try to divide truth and love, put truth away and focus just on love and acceptance and tolerance. But here's the thing. Biblical truth and love are vitally connected which means you try to pull one from the other, both get distorted. Both of them get distorted when you try to separate the two. We'll see where this comes into play in just a little bit. So I'm giving this warning, and it looks like for the Christians in Ephesus and Thyatira, they both fell into this trap. For the Christians in Ephesus, it looks like they lean too far towards truth, and they let go of love. Because Jesus said, you lost your first love. It looks like here with some of the Christians in Thyatira, they've leaned a little too far towards love and they've loosened their grip on the truth. So Jesus commends them. I know your works. But then he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. And what you see as you read, and it's a short letter, so this is pretty compact. She's teaching and seducing Christians in the church. Now, if you've listened to all of the, this is the fourth, I think, in the series, all the previous ones, you'll notice there's a pattern, because I've talked about it every week. Food offered to idols and immorality. And it's related, both of those are related to worship that they did back then. We have our own patterns today, and they're different, but they also relate to worship just not formal worship. And we'll come back to that again also. And so the danger in this letter is tolerating evil in the church. Now when I first, 
was working on the sermon, I just had it as tolerating evil. And I realized that there could be a misunderstanding. You see, in, in 1 Corinthians, let me just explain it this way. In 1 Corinthians, there is a similar situation to what we have in our letter today. And Paul writes to the Christian church, and he reminds them and tells them, do not associate with sinners. And he, when he says sinners, he's talking about people who turn away from God. And then he clarifies it. He says, my command isn't for you to not associate with all sinners. It said, if that's what you thought, you'd have to actually leave the earth. Okay, because all of us are sinners. And so he says, here's what I'm wanting you to understand. Don't associate with people who are Christians. People in the church, they're either Christians or claim to be Christians. And they're openly, and then he gives a list of three example sins. Openly greedy, openly cheats, openly worshiping other gods. All three of those God says don't do. And here are people who say, I'm a Christian, but yet they're doing these things. So, in this letter to, to, to the church at Thyatira in Revelation, Jesus isn't saying, don't tolerate any evil. The danger is knowingly tolerating evil in the Christian church. Again, as I started, there's evil in every one of us. If we're going to try to not tolerate any evil, that means we're not going to tolerate ourselves, as well as everybody else. Well, then Jesus goes on, and he talks about his actions against this Jezebel. And I put it in quotes, because Jezebel was almost certainly not the lady's name. Jesus is pulling this name from the Old Testament. In fact, our previous sermon series we just did was in Eli uh, about Elijah. And two of the main characters he was dealing with were Ahab, King Ahab, and his wife Jezebel. Well, this Jezebel in the church is claiming some degree of authority. She calls herself a prophetess. You see that in verse 20. And this is actually common, even today, that people that have a teaching contrary to God's word will claim some type of authority. It might be religious authority, it might be academic, it might be some other kind. And then in verse 21, you see Jesus' patience. Jesus says he's giving her time to repent, to change. But she refuses. And here's the idea of her teaching if you kind of connect a few things together. She seems to be teaching Jesus plus. In her case, and that's actually, again, another common one, Jesus plus something. Jesus plus follow all these rules, be a good person. Jesus plus be a member of this particular group. Hers is Jesus plus the worship of other gods. And there are people that are following her. And so Jesus says he's going to bring judgment against her and against those people who follow her. Then in verse 23, he says, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. This connects to last week's verses that I looked at in Hebrews 4, where it talks about the word of God discerns our hearts, and we're going to be held accountable to God. Here we have a theme already that we've seen. Jesus has authority, and he's going to judge. And then Jesus also says, all the churches will see what Jesus is doing when he brings judgment. Now, just one other note. When God's people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, turn away from him, God calls that 
sin. But sometimes he refers to it in terms of spiritual adultery or spiritual immorality. And he does that because God likens our relationship with him to a marriage. And when we turn away from God, we're being unfaithful. So then in verse 24 and 25, Jesus gives a command. He says, hold fast what you have until I come. Well, what did the Christians in Thyatira have? What do Christians today have? Jesus gives Christians back then and today everything that we need for life and godliness. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his promises for wisdom and strength. He gives forgiveness and mercy and so much more. We'll see in just a minute. Often we forget all that Jesus gives us. We start looking at our problems and looking at our desires and our, our focus narrows and we forget these things. Then in verse 26, Jesus says he's going to grant to those who listen to him and follow, those who conquer, two things. First, authority over the nations to rule with a rod of iron. And both in our verses today and in Matthew 28, Jesus makes it clear, God the Father gave him all authority over everything, heaven and earth. Nothing is left out there. And here's where he makes the reference to Psalm 2 about ruling and now he says he's applying this to Christians. So somehow we are going to rule with him. Now, if you want the particulars, too bad. We don't know. Because he doesn't tell us exactly what this means or what this is going to look like. We have to wait till we get there. Well, the second thing he says we do know. Jesus says to the one who listens and follows, he'll give the morning star. Jesus is the morning star. So what Jesus is saying is he will give every Christian himself. There isn't a better gift that we can be given. You see, too often we take Christianity and we, we turn it into Christianity is all about a set of rules to follow. Or Christianity is a set of promises you've been given. Cling to those promises. But Jesus says he's given us himself. We have a relationship with Jesus, if you're a Christian, that you will never lose, and not because we're so good at holding on, but because he is. Now, so that's the letter. Let me come back to these things I was referring to. Let me start by talking a little bit more about worship. Worship includes a whole lot more than just the formal religious worship services like the one we are in right now, or even the kind of worship that the guilds in Thyatira wanted their members to participate in as they worshiped their gods. God made all of us worshipers, every single person. Whether we acknowledge God or not, we are worshipers, which means we worship every day, all through the day, and as we worship, we choose who and what we will delight in, we also choose who and what we're going to seek life from and meaning from. Well, God made us to worship him as well as all of these other things. Sometimes you can get the idea that we can only choose one thing at a time to focus on. And I know a lot of wives think, husbands, that's all they can do. Just one thing at a time. But God, sorry, I just throw that one in. But in fact, we can worship God and enjoy many things at the same time. But everything gets totally 
tilted wrong and out of whack if we try to take God out of first place and put something else in that place. You see, when you and I don't worship God above everything else, that's spiritual adultery. And that is what some of the Christians in Thyatira were doing and the others were tolerating. So now let's talk about tolerance, tolerating evil. The word tolerance is actually pretty big in our culture right now. It's kind of a code word for acceptance. So acceptance is the mantra, and it's more than just the idea. It is the demand. See, there's an unspoken, often unspoken idea, and it goes like this. I choose who I want to be, who, who I am and what I will be, and then you must celebrate my choice with me. And it goes the other way around, too. And anything less than a full acceptance and celebration is considered rejection. Now, this idea has been around long enough that people who look at people and people who look at cultures, both Christian and non-Christian, say there are all kinds of problems with that idea. All kinds of problems that come with it. And yet it's still being pushed right now. And along with this idea of tolerance, put that in quotes, is another idea that there are no absolute truths or standards. It's all relative. We get to choose our own truth. Never mind that the statement that there are no absolutes is itself an absolute statement, contradicting on its face. So what you have in our culture today is that this tolerance and acceptance is the demand, and intolerance of anyone who disagrees is the practice. You're going to be punished. Well, in contrast to this, what you see in our verses and all through Scripture is you see God's patience. Again and again. You see, the, you see tolerance in the true meaning of the word. You see patience. All through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, we see it today. You see it not just with people who are trying to love God, but even people who reject God. And you see it in the letter today with Jesus' patience with Jezebel. And then you see it in the letters as Jesus is writing to these churches. Because in, in most letters, Jesus says, here's something you need to change. And he gives them some time to change. Today's letter also leads us <clears throat> to what I want to finish with. We call it often church discipline. Might be sometimes better termed church restoration. Remember, a, a Christian's condition. We are a mix of God's spirit in a selfish nature. God provides the spirit, we provide the selfish nature. Sin is like a cancer. Left alone, it will spread. So God has a way to try to, where he wants to use us, involve us in the lives of others to limit that spread. Let's look briefly at two passages. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. One other verse, Galatians 6, verse 1. 
Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So Matthew 18 gives us a three-step process. And notice in the first verse of it, verse 15, you get the goal. And that is restoration. You've gained your brother. Then did you notice in Galatians 6, 1, the, the word caught? If anyone is caught, and he's writing this to Christians. Remember last week, from last week, I said that James 1 tells us temptation comes from our own desires. Well, desire in sin is something like the bait and the hook when you go fishing. When you're fishing, the fish, if it sees the bait, only sees the bait. It does not see the hook. In fact, it does not even know there's a hook until it swallows the bait. Then it knows there's a hook. When you and I focus just on our desires, we narrow our vision, we forget about God and other people, we just narrow our vision on our desire, we don't notice the hook, that is sin, until we turn away from God. And even then, we're often like the fish who's going to fight to keep the bait. When you and I say yes to a desire, we turn away from God and we are caught. And what these verses show us, they show us how we, God can use us to help other people around us as God shows us that they are caught in sin. So the goal is restoration. It's restoration of the person to God and with, to other people. Because if you and I have turned away from God, we're now estranged. Okay, we've, we've put distance between us and God. That, that distance needs to be closed. Where we've turned away, we need to turn back. And sometimes God uses other people to help us do that. The method is gentleness. Not an I told you so. You see in, in, in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, and at the end of Galatians, not only is it gentleness, but he also says, watch yourself as you're doing this. Because just so fast we can given to pride, just so fast we can ourselves end up getting caught. And then the motivation for the restoration is love. It's loving others. When we do that, we're copying God because that's what God does all the time. He loves us and cares for us. Now, there's two dangers. There's the one that we started with that's in the letter that we see. It's almost as if following God in, in our living our life and then also in being used by God in the lives of others, we're on this path that has two cliffs. Got one on one side and one on the other. The first one we already saw in the letter, and that's seeing somebody who has turned away and is in sin, they're disobeying God, and we don't do anything. We see it, and we don't say anything. We don't do anything. On the other side, we decide that we need to be the spiritual police. Okay, we are going to dig out all the sin that we can find in anybody else. That's a key word there, else. That's the other danger, because that's not our job. You read the Bible, it becomes very clear. You and I aren't the ones who actually convict people of sin, that we've done wrong, that we've turned away, that we've given into our desire. God is the one who does that. 
He may use us, but he's the one who does it. Instead, what should we be doing besides this, this idea of being used by God to restore? First, grieve over our sin, the evil in us, and in the evil in other people. Just a little warning there. If you focus just on the evil in other people, oh, the temptation is so subtle, but it is there. Oh, I would never do that. I, I, no, I couldn't possibly ever do that. And pride comes in. So we grieve over our evil first, over others. Then we pray and ask God to work. Ask God to work in your own life. Ask God to work in the other people's lives. And as God leads you and gives you eyes to see, confront others lovingly and gently. For what purpose? For restoration. Again, restoration is a form of rescue. But as you're living your life, every day, thank God for rescuing you. Because that's where it all starts. Let's pray. Lord, it can be hard at times to go through these letters looking each week at a danger and recognizing we have that danger in us. It can be so discouraging. But you tell us you've chosen to love us. And our hope, as we sing about, as we read in the Bible again and again, our hope is in you. So Lord, turn our hearts to you. Help us to thank you for all the good that you have done in our lives and are doing in the lives of people around us. We pray that you would give us your heart for others because we recognize all of us fail. We, we fail our own standards, much less yours. And we turn away and we, are, we get focused on our own desires. And when we chase after those desires, we hurt other people. You bring other people in our lives to rescue us. You want to use us in the lives of others to help rescue them. Lord, give us that desire and then help us to enjoy and delight in your care for us and your care for others where you use us in their lives to help them. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a song. Jesse.